Well, if you don't know, we're talking about um, Jericho and the walls tumbling down this morning. And that story comes to us from the book of Joshua, uh, from the sixth chapter, and we are going to look at the first 20 verses this morning. And so I invite you to, uh, to listen to these words of this story. Now, Jericho was shut up inside and out because of the Israelites, and no one came out and no one went in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have handed Jericho over to you along with its kings and soldiers, and you shall march around the city, all the warriors circling the city once. Thus you shall do for six days with seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, the priests blowing the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat, and all the people shall charge straight ahead. So Joshua, son of Nun, summoned the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and have seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns in front of the Ark of the Lord. To the people, he said, Go forward and march around the city. Have the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. And the armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets. The rear guard came after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. And to the people Joshua gave this command, You shall not shout or let your voice be heard, nor shall you utter a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So the ark of the Lord went around the city, circling it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord passed on, blowing the trumpets continually. The armed men went before them, and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And on the second day, they marched around the city once and then returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at dawn and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers we sent. As for you, keep away from the things devoted to destruction so as not to covet. And take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel an object for destruction bringing trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, they raised a great shout. 
and the wall fell down flat. So the people charged straight ahead into the city and captured it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story, this striking story about you, your providence, your love, and how you take care of your people. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning, a people who know the story, and that you would help us to hear it anew and afresh. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, this is again another story as we kind of go through the Jesus Storybook Bible that probably quite a few of us are fairly familiar with, more than likely uh, from when you were a child. And I, I always loved this story when I was growing up. It's such a, a great story, but, but I didn't really like it uh, uh, just because the people were marching around in circles or because of the horns or, or even because of the soldiers. Why did I like it? Because the walls came tumbling down. And, 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 and I loved, as a boy, just going up and tumbling down whatever I could, right? One of the things we're always saying to our kids is, is stop destroying stuff just because you can, right? But there's something about kids that love to just kind of knock things down. And I really kind of thought it was mostly because I was a boy, but I have discovered that little girls like to knock things down as well. Right? And our, uh, our, our Shaughnessy, our oldest, as she was growing up, she would love to kind of slowly kind of build something block by block. And then, and the only reason she did it was so that she could all of a sudden go and just knock it down, right? And, and one of the things that I delighted in as, I, uh, as a father is seeing her do that. And then when her middle sister began to grow old enough, she would kind of go and you, she would almost kind of sneak around and see what her sister was doing. And then you could watch as she tried to go over there and knock it down before her sister did. And, and then there was a big fight and it was awesome, right? I mean, this was good stuff. And so we, we, we loved watching this. And, and when I was a kid and I'd hear the story, I mean, I kept thinking, wow, that's cool. God works like this. And so I would, I would go around and I would kind of be like a magician and I would, you know, try to pray. I don't know. It's kind of like Batman or Spider-Man, I should say. You kind of pray and be like, and just see if whatever you were praying towards, if it would fall down, right? And, and so you'd go to Walls or to my sister or to, to, to Lincoln Logs, anything, just to see if it worked. But of course, it never worked. Because things like that don't usually happen. And it's, it's one of the reasons, as we look at this story, as I've told you before, I think it is pivotal that we, that we relook as adults at these stories. Because the truth is, when you're a kid and you hear this story, you oftentimes, you get so distracted by the excitement of the tumbling walls that you may even kind of uh, overlook just what a weird story this really is. 
But it begins, of course, fairly normally, does it not? It begins with a siege. Now, a siege is a pretty typical thing for a war, for a battle at that time, especially when you have walls like Jericho had. And so rather than kind of wasting all of your good soldiers on having them try to scale the walls or or bust through a door, uh, they would just wait and hope that eventually, of course, people would get hungry enough that they would say, okay, fine you win, we're hungry, uh, we give up, right? Everyone knows that battle plan. And so, so it starts out very normally. And then God comes down to Joshua and he says, wait, okay, Joshua, I've got this, this great battle plan, basically, right? At least that's what we're expecting. Here's, this, here's, this, here's what we're going to do. And, and so he begins by telling Joshua, don't even worry about it. Uh, uh, I have already kind of given Jericho over to you, and, and including its king and its soldiers. They're all yours. And if you're Joshua, of course, you're thinking, that's good stuff, right? All right, this is going to be great. Now just tell us how we're going to do it. You know, we're going to scale the walls. We're going to, we're going to go in and bust down. What's, tell me exactly how it's going to happen. And so God says, okay, here's the plan. All right, great. I want you to take your soldiers, your warriors. Okay, of course, take warriors. Great, that's what you should do. Okay, and I want you to walk around the walls. Okay, all right, that's great. Probably looking for a weak spot, you know, could be the, you know, maybe there's a little bit lower spot. Maybe there's a place that we can dig in underneath and God's going to show us that as we walk around. Okay, that's great. And, and, and then, okay, go back to your camp, okay? And then the next day, okay, uh-huh, go around again. Now, at this point, Joshua has to be kind of wondering, well, this is a little bit strange, okay. But, but then, then God tells him not only that, but also he says, and I want you to take, you know, take the priests with you. Now, see, that should have stopped Joshua in his tracks right there because everyone knows that priests, i.e. pastors, are cowards, right? This is not what we want to do, right? You don't want the pastors with you. You want people who can actually fight, right? You want real men. You don't want pastors, right? And so, so, so but, 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 but Joshua seems to go, okay. And he says, okay, now, now here's the thing. You're going to do this for six days, okay? And on the seventh day, all right, this is when it gets good. You're going to walk around it seven times, And then you're going to blow the horn real loud like, okay? And as soon as that's done, then just yell. And the walls, they're just going to come tumbling down. What a great plan, God. I mean, Joshua had to be beside himself with this plan. But not only for that reason, but here's the thing. What does Joshua have to go and do after hearing this great battle plan from God? He has to share it. And I want you to think about this. Here you have a bunch of soldiers, probably testosterone-filled soldiers, who have been marching around and doing nothing for 40 years. They have not been able to do anything. They haven't been able to hit anyone but themselves. They've not been able to do anything. And here they are, ready to go. They've already heard from some spies that they're scared inside the walls of Jericho. And so now they know, just like a football team who's finally been practicing for months and actually gets to go and hit somebody new, finally we get to go in and we get to take care of business. And God, or Joshua says to them, no, you're actually just going to be kind of walking around. And not only that, you got to take 
you got to take the priests, right? The ones who are over there in the corner chewing their fingernails, right? You've got to take them. You've got to be thinking, you're kidding me, and this is, what, this is great. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but Joshua inserted something in the instructions that God had given to him. You know what that is? What he, in, what, he, what he inserted was he said to them, and you all don't say a word the whole time. Why do you think Joshua didn't want them to say a word? Well, he knew if they were going to say something, it was not going to be anything good towards him. Right? I mean, this is not the right plan. But they do it. I give them all the credit in the world. They decide. They go around. They, they, they march around. And, and then that moment there after marching around on the seventh day, the moment between when the horn is blown and when they scream, can you imagine what an anxiety-ridden time that would have been for Joshua? I mean, he is either going to be a hero or an absolute goat. Right? And I kind of picture him actually on a horse that's facing away from Jericho just at that time, just in case things don't quite work as he had hoped. And yet, sure enough, they scream, the walls fall down, and the victory is theirs. But the question again for us is, why? In the scripture, in the Old Testament, there are lots of battles, and they're kind of normal battles. They're just kind of exactly what you would expect. Why does God have them do this at this point in their journey? Well, the Bible never really comes out and says, this is exactly why I want you to do this. And so we have to do a wee bit of digging. We have to ask ourselves, what are some clues? And so one of the, one of the first clues, of course, is to look for things that keep coming up again and again. And if there's, there's one word that keeps coming up a lot, it's actually a number. What's that number? You guys were listening. Good. Seven. Right? Seven priests, seven times going around, seven horns, seven, there's something else, seven days in all. Lots of sevens, right? We're familiar with sevens. That's, that's typically kind of the number for fulfillment. And when's the first time that we ever see the number seven in Scripture? You guys have been listening. Good. That's right. Creation. The very first, at the very beginning of the Bible, creation. And what did God do on the seventh day? He rested. And remember, if you were here last week when we were talking about the Sabbath, that happened. We, it, it referred back to that time when God rested. The Sabbath is a time to rest, right? And so all of a sudden here, this is interesting, when you hear seven the people who were hearing this story, or Joshua at least, probably would have been thinking, okay, well, well already this is a little bit odd. We're, we're thinking about the Sabbath. Okay, well, not only that, you, you also have then the priests, the aforementioned priests. Okay, well, well, priests are usually there for a religious function, if you will. Okay, so we've got the priests. And then you have the, the, the ram's horns, the shofars, right? And, and those were used in battles, but guess when else those horns were used? Kind of in just typical kind of 
religious services. In a worship service, you would, you would have the horn, right? And not only that, you also have the Ark of the Covenant, right? Uh, which is the presence of God that, that Joshua was told he needed to have with it. Not only that, if you heard it, you probably did. At some point you were like, man, why are we reading this whole thing? This is getting annoying. And a, a part of it is because it's very detailed language, and it's much, as you kind of think about it, it's much more, it's, it's almost like a, like a liturgy, if you will. This is kind of a, this person goes here, that person, and you go around and you have the Ark of the Covenant. It's a very kind of liturgical language. And when you put all of that together, you begin to, to wonder whether or not this sounds less like a, like, a, like a plan that's put together with a bunch of generals on the battlefield and more like something that happens every Wednesday afternoon at 1.30 up in room 201. Do you know what happens here at ZPC at room 201 every Wednesday afternoon at 1.30? It's very exciting. What happens is Betsy Howden and John Grabiel and Scott Shelton and Sally Bias and I and one of the youth guys, we get together. And do you know what we do? We play ping pong. No, not really. <laughs> we talk about what we're going to do the very next Sunday, i.e. Sabbath. We talk about what horns are going to be played, i.e. what music is going to be played. We talk about what the priests, i.e. the pastors, are going to do. We talk about who is going to go where when they are up here. We talk about the prayers. We talk about what communion is going to look like. We are planning a worship service. And you begin to see, when you think about this story, that the reason why it seems like such a strange battle plan is because it actually is not a battle plan at all. It is a worship plan. It is a plan for worship. And what God is doing is subversively forcing the Israelites before they go into battle Jericho to stop and worship God. And why is God doing that? Because God knows that these people who have been waiting for 40 years and who are so ready to move past the sins of their parents and their grandparents and who are so ready to go to a place where there is lots of good food and not just manna and are ready to go into the promised land and take over not just Jericho but all the other cities that are there in this land of milk and honey. They are ready to go in. And if God allows them to just simply go in and begin taking over Jericho and every other city, it will not be long until they begin to believe that everything they're doing is of their own power and their own might and their own volition. And they will forget that it is all a gift from God. Worship, at its very basic level, as we talked about last week in the Ten Commandments, is an act of gratitude as we respond to the gifts that God has given to us. And if 
We do not take time to allow something like worship to intrude on our lives and to get in our way. We will not stop and refocus on the reality that everything we have and are is a gift from God. We talked about Sabbath last week. About the fact that it's a time to stop our work, to get off the web, to get off of our emails, off of our phones, to get away from some of that so that we can break and ask whether or not we realize that all of this is a gift from God. I talked a few weeks ago, I apologized to some of you who I knew would be upset about the fact that we have these speed bumps, right? That are out there in the parking lot. Everyone hit those speed bumps a couple of times and they're out there. And do you know why we have them out there? Because we know, we could have just put a sign out there that said, hey, you know, there are kids that are walking in the parking lot. Will you please slow down? And guess what would have happened? Nothing. Right? Nothing would have happened. But the reason, of course, that we have those speed bumps out there to get in your way as you are driving through and as you would much prefer to go faster, right? We have those speed bumps out there to slow us down and to make us aware that there are children around. And the reason why we have disruptive things like worship, like the Sabbath, is to slow us down, to speed bump us, and make us aware that God is actually around. Because if we do not do that, if the Israelites had not done that, they would have easily begun to think this was their own thing. This was what they were doing. Worship is supposed to get in our way. It is supposed to annoy us. One of the things that perhaps we as leaders continue to falter is we try to make worship as convenient and non-obtrusive as possible. We will have it at all times of the day or night if we can. We will make things as gentle and easy for you as possible. Why? Because we know that you may not come if we do not. But one of the things that we miss out on is the fact that worship by its very nature is supposed to disrupt our lives. Because if we aren't disruptive, we don't think. It is supposed to shape us. And if you are not somewhat annoyed at times, if your life is not disrupted at times, then you will not be shaped. Why do muscles, if muscles were allowed to do what they want to do, they would just lay there. And the only way to get them in shape is to disrupt and annoy them. We are all muscles. Left to our own devices, we will just be blobs. And worship forces us to recenter our lives and to ask are we really being a people of gratitude? Do we really believe that everything? The way that we spend our time and our talents is actually a gift from God. But of course, we worship not just through our time or our talent. We also worship through the way that we give of our treasure. This is everyone's favorite time of year. Not Thanksgiving. It's stewardship season. 
And one of the things when it comes to stewardship in churches is we oftentimes don't talk about the reality that what giving of your money is, is an act of worship. What we oftentimes usually do is we, we really say, look, if, if you don't give, right, then we won't be able to do things. We won't be able to turn the lights on. We, we won't be able to give money to mission workers in the, throughout this county or this city and throughout the United States and the world. We, we won't be able to pay for our staff. And, and I want you to know, because it's always a good time to be able to do this, that we greatly appreciate the fact that you do that. We as a staff, we are, we are deeply grateful for the fact that because you give, we are able to feed our families and, and, and do what we want, you know, things that we want. And, and, and Scott, right? Hey, oh, you better give more than that. That's right. I was, he about got a pay cut right there. So, So we are grateful for that. But what you need to know is that at its very root, giving to the church like ZPC is not to keep the lights on. It is an act of worship. And one of the, one of the questions that inevitably comes up whenever we talk about this is how much should we give? Do, or not really should. How much do we have to give, right? How much, you know, is it still kind of the Old Testament tithe or did that kind of go, you know, off with the New Testament? Do we, do we give based on our net or our gross? I mean, that's easy, always gross. But the, uh, I'm just kidding. But don't get angry. But it seems to me while those questions are interesting, they're not the most important question. The most important question is, do you give in such a way that it disrupts your life? Do you give in such a way that it slightly annoys you as you are writing the check? Because you know that there are other ways that you would like to spend that money. Do you give in such a way that it actually shapes you? Because if not, then it is not an act of worship, which is exactly what it is supposed to be. We all like to point out in the scripture, God loves a cheerful giver. And that's true, but it never says God doesn't love an uncheerful giver, right? And we at ZPC are fine with uncheerful givers. I only say that partly tongue-in-cheek. Because here's the thing, I think oftentimes we wait until we feel cheerful to give. And there are times, especially in the beginning, right? Especially when you start a workout program. Anyone ever worked out that first day and the next day you're like, I can't move. Is that oftentimes, and when you begin these kinds of things, when you begin coming to worship and it's like, ah, oh, this is kind of annoying having to, to take out this hour when I would much rather be doing something else. Whenever you begin something, it doesn't always happen with great cheer. You have to work up to it. And one of the things that we have to continue to wrestle with is the reality that worship is and should be costly. It does cost you of your time when you are here, as it should. It does cost you perhaps during the week when you as an act of worship, as we've talked about before, decide at an afternoon or evening that you're going to go and love a neighbor rather than just kind of sticking to yourself. 
It does cost you as it should when you decide to write that check for ZPC rather than someplace else. But not only is it costly, but it has an incredibly powerful effect in shaping us into a people of generosity and a people of gratitude. And that is remarkably freeing. Because when you take time out to come here on a Sunday morning and worship, you begin to understand more clearly, it seems to me, just how precious time actually is. And rather than just scooting from one thing to the next throughout the week, you begin to see that it is a gift from God. And that makes your whole week different. When you come in here, we talked about this last week, as a community and are shaped as a community, then you begin to experience freedom rather than the slavery of saying whatever society says around you, whatever that is, that's what you have to do. Whenever you you come in here and you are willing to act in worship and you are willing to kind of go through the difficult journey of writing a check or giving money away, whether it's a ZPC or elsewhere, as an act of gratitude, you begin to make a statement. You begin to be shaped into a people who say, I will not allow my possessions to take control over me. And you begin, it seems to me, to actually hold things lightly, which allows you to enjoy them much more greatly as the gift that it actually is. Worship for the Israelites was costly. It cost them time. It cost them their ego for those who wanted to think that they were doing this on their own. But it changed everything for them. And my hope and prayer is that we will continue to be shaped in our worship, however that looks, as we worship with our time and our talent and our treasure into a people who continue to be shaped more as a people of gratitude, a people of grace, a people who understand that everything you have, everything you are is a gift. Everything you have is a, let's do it one more time. Everything we have and are is a, everything. And for that, I say, thanks be to God. Amen.